again and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and where we go, behind the lens and below the line with master craftsmen, artisans, directors, writers, actors, composers, production designers, costumers, authors, and many others. Everything that goes into the making of film and television. So, welcome, welcome again. Hard to believe. Tomorrow, Oscar nominations are announced tomorrow morning. Uh, very exciting. Uh, it's always it's always uh, interesting to see what the Academy comes up with, how many films they will include, and they're up to 10 nominations for Best Picture. Will your favorites be there? Will my favorites be there? Um, that's always, that's always a, a, a big question. And will a lot of the craftsmen and artisans that you've been hearing interviews from here on the show and reading on... Uh, on the website, how many of those will pick up some nominations? Uh, I firmly believe we're going to hear some costume design nominations for Sandy Powell with Mary Poppins, also possibly for The Favorite, um, which doesn't seem to bode too well when you're going against yourself in the same category. Also, Alexander Byrne for Mary Queen of Scots. I would truly love to see her pick up a nomination for the innovative use of denims in designing all of the costumes in that film. She really went outside the box. Uh, another personal favorite of mine, I my fingers are crossed, the Julian Day, uh, the incredible costume designer for Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, that we hear Julian's name announced tomorrow morning uh, in costume design. Um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting and exciting. A lot of the craftspeople this year... Is more exemplary, I think, this year than in several of the prior years. It's always a tough call. Uh, scoring, Alexandre Desplat for Isle of Dogs is a, a, by far one of my top picks for Oscar contention. But we will see what happens tomorrow. And that uh, the big questions looming for the for the big names for Best Director. Best Actor, Best Actress. You know, we saw Glenn Close, who I championed back since I first screened the film uh, weeks before it even opened. And she has made, become a strong contender for Oscar nomination uh, given for her performance in The Wife. I mean, she already picked up an Independent Spirit Award she, uh, nomination, which we'll find out about that on uh, the, tw the day before the Oscars when the Spirit Awards uh, are held on the beach in Santa Monica. She was a surprise to many, a dark horse. Not so anymore after she picked up her Golden Globe and after she's, after she's picked up some more hardware from some of the critic societies. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. I'll be covering it on BehindTheLensOnline.net and we'll talk about it next week. But right now, let's talk about Behind the Lens today. Slam Dance and Sundance are starting up. Slam Dance starts the end of this week on the 25th. And we have two very talented filmmakers who have one who has a documentary making its world premiere at Slam Dance this, this, uh, on the 25th. 
Heidi Human uh, with Behind the Bullet. A fascinating documentary on gun safety, gun control, but it is told from the perspective of four individuals, each affected by gun violence in a particular and unique way. So Heidi will be uh, calling in live at about the quarter hour mark. And at the half hour mark, there was no way I could not have this filmmaker on. Melissa Stevens, she has developed a web series, Finding the A-Hole. You can figure out what the full name of the series is. But that's all that we can say on the air. Um, It's executive produced by Leslie Headland. I'll cover anything that Leslie's involved in. Um, She is is, uh, a real favorite of mine. So, but Melissa will be calling in at the half hour mark to talk about her web series, uh, which will not only is it premiering at Slamdance on the 25th, it will, some episodes will also be dropping on Vimeo at the same time so that everybody will be able to see them. So we'll get all that information when we have Melissa on the line uh, later on in the show. But right now I want to talk about a film that I am... I am entranced with, entranced by uh, Ashes in the Snow. It's out in limited release. It stars Belle Powley, and uh, it's on digital and VOD. And yes, it is even on Spectrum because I looked. Uh, it's always questionable whether things are on Spectrum or not at the same time as other places. That's why I always like to make mention because I know so many of you are on the Spectrum cable system. But it is on Spectrum. Ashes in the Snow. It is based on the best-selling young adult novel Between Shades of Grey by Ruta Sapitas. If you haven't read the book, read the book. It is not just for young adults. It is for everyone. And it hones in on an, on an oft-overlooked chapter of world history. And that was the genocide, the Balkan genocide, the Lithuanian genocide, uh, courtesy of Stalin. Back in the ni- back in 1941-1942, something very important. Ruta, of course, has Lithuanian roots. The film was shot on location. This is the first globally distributed film about Lithuania, and it's in English. And it takes us. It's a story of a young girl, a 15-year-old girl named Lena, in Lithuania. Time is 1941, and it is a story of she and her family how they are taken to a prison camp. The father is separated from the mother, uh, herself, and her younger brother. It is the the struggles and what they endured in prison camps. And then when they were sent north to Siberia, along with some of the guards, um, which casts a unique perspective in the telling of this story. Uh, because as much as the Lithuanians were prisoners of the of the Soviets, these guards that were sent to Siberia were also prisoners uh, in their own right and some prisoners of their own conscience. We see this unfold in the film, Ashes in the Snow, adapted by Ben Jones from Ruta's book, um, directed by Marius Markovicius, Beautiful job. Volker. Volker, one of the composers who did the music for The Incredible Lion a couple years ago. Volker does the score for this film. The cinematographer is Ramunas Grecius. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. 
uh, with some flashbacks. Anyone that has read the book, you know that it's set in 1941. But then there are flashbacks in Lena's mind to her happier days, and it's beautifully executed within the film. I spoke with Ruta uh, just last week about the book and the adaptation. And it's, it's very interesting for an author when they have their book adapted for the screen. Sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're not. In this particular case, Ruta was overjoyed with what Marius did bringing this story to the screen. But one of the first things that I wanted to ask her about was becoming an author and why tell this particular story. This was her very first novel in 2011. She came out of the world of music and entertainment management and jumped into writing this novel. And here it is, 2019, and it's already been made into a feature and it's and on the big screen. So this is what she had to say about her journey to write this book. Number one, I love historical fictional novels anyway, um, because they are so crucial to exposing people to world history, to American history, to world history. But to see it done and and be classified as a young adult novel. Well, I, I have to say, honestly, the young readers are the champions in all of this. Yeah. They have, they have taken to the story and they have such a sense of justice. Why do we not know about this? I've heard from some teachers who have said it was actually my student who brought the book to me. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's it's really an honor and a privilege for me to work with these young students. They're the ones who are helping me bring this history out of the dark. And it's all of your stuff. I mean, you've got your hitting 1950s New Orleans and feminism with Out of the Easy. Salt to the Sea, I absolutely have to, have to read that one about the evacuation from Prussia and the sinking of the Wilhelm. Yeah, I mean, that truly, why has everyone heard of the Titanic, but yet... This ship was, the death toll was nine times the magnitude, and people don't know. And that's what really motivates me, is that history holds secrets. Um, and, of course, for this particular story, because my, my family is Lithuanian, this, this was very close to home for me. You know, my father fled from Lithuania and spent nine years in refugee camps, um, and his extended family was deported to Siberia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm yeah, so that was part of the inspiration. You know, you made a really big shift career shift from music and entertainment management to author. So I'm curious when when you decided to make that shift and dive into telling this story of Lena and her family. Um, because that, I mean, it's a jump, but it's also not the kind of story you think somebody would sit down and tackle as their first novel. You are are so right. Um, And I actually knew that I wanted to be an author when I was very young, I mean, in elementary school. And um, my my first attempt at writing didn't go so well. And I decided to pursue music from a very young age. And so for many years in the music business, I was storytelling, but through music, and I was telling other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And then around, well, it had to be around 2005, um, you know, I had been working with so many people in the music business for years, asking them about their story and helping them put it into song and into bios. And finally, someone turned the tables on me and said, well, wait a minute, what's your story? <laughs> and the first thing I said was, oh, well, my story, I'm Lithuanian. And the musician said, 
Ruta, I have no idea what that means. What is Lithuanian? <laughs> um, and I said, oh, it's a country. And he said, I don't think I've ever seen Lithuania on a map. You know, and it really occurred to me that Lithuania was often used as sort of like humor or pop culture in, in pop culture references. Um, when someone wanted to express something really remote, they would say, oh, well, maybe you'll end up in Lithuania. Or, But people truly didn't know the story. And and I, was, I wanted to tell this story, but not just for the Lithuanians, for the millions of victims of communism um, that never had a chance to tell their story. So I, ch- I started to change gears in 2005 and started to write. How did this particular story take shape? Because you draw on so much history. So I'm curious about your research project, you know, how that, that process was for researching to get all the factual elements and then combine that with the fictional elements? Yes, I, I traveled to Lithuania, I took a few trips, and I met with survivors, with human beings who had basically been condemned to death, and they survived, and they agreed to share their story with me. And many of them were, were too frightened to even give me their name. I mean, you know, Stalin still hangs over these people like a cold shadow, and they were frightened, and they said, okay, so I'll tell you my name, but you have to promise never to, uh, or sorry, I'll tell you my story, but you have to promise never to use my name. So in the book, many of the characters don't have names. Um, Lena has a name, obviously, and and her mother and brother, um, but the story took shape from the testimonies uh, of these survivors, and I decided to write about a group of people who were deported to the North Pole and dumped out there, and, you know, they were expected to die, and several of them didn't. And what interested me was when they told me about the guards that were sent with them to the North Pole. My first thought was, wait a minute, that's a prison sentence also for whoever this guard is, mm-hmm. the Soviet guard. You know, tell me a little bit more. And then I realized that this is not just black and white, and history never is, as you know, but but really uh, there were Soviet guards there who were quite conflicted and who were suffering themselves. And that sort of inspired the title Between Shades of Grey. It's never black and white. It's only when we peel back the layers of gray that's when we find the truth. Mm-hmm. And thankfully my book came out seven months before Fifty Shades of Grey. Still been it's still been using. And yes, as a reminder to all, Between between Shades of Grey has nothing at all to do with the Fifty Shades of Grey series. Totally different. Which is one reason why the title of the film became Ashes in the Snow. And when you watch the film, there's a very poignant scene uh, of Lena, who was an excellent artist, was drawing pictures on scraps of paper, hoping to smuggle them out of the camp and that somehow they would find their way to her father, wherever he was, to let him know that they were alive and they were all right. But there is a scene where a guard finds them, grabs them, and burns them in a fire outside, and they turn to ashes and blow out into the snow. Uh, Stunning visual sequence. Stunning visual sequence. And the poignancy is superb but now once ruta has her book and it gets handed off to the screenwriter to ben york jones so what's that like 
How collaborative is that between the author and the screenwriter in this case? I'm curious, did you work at all with Ben Jones on the, the screenplay? Did he come to you for input? Because obviously with any book, when it gets adapted for the screen, there are changes and there are considerations. And you're also taking a book that, you know, designed for the younger adult market. But in film, you want to ramp it up so you also bring in the adult audiences. So I'm curious as to the changes that he made and you're working with him in taking it from the printed page to the screen. Ben was so incredibly generous um, and offered to show me, uh, you know, as he was writing along the way, bits and pieces. And I said, no, Ben, I said, write a draft. And, and, and then if, if, if you'd be so generous to, to show me, yes, I'd love to see it. So I didn't see it until they had um, a first draft. And then he asked my opinion on some historical things for accuracy and authenticity. And, and so I was very much uh, allowed to be involved in the process, but I didn't, I didn't see the need to contribute because they were doing such a good job and they were showing such reverence to the history. And I think um, Ben made some changes from the book that I absolutely love and that I think readers actually, even though initially they say, oh, I want it to be just like the book, I think readers are really going to gravitate toward this version. Um, so it, for me, it was just absolutely incredible to see how he takes this 300-page novel and condenses it down to 100 powerful pages. It's yeah. fascinating. And it's not often that you hear an author rave about the screenwriter. Uh, who has just massaged their original material. It was quite refreshing to hear Ruta talk about that. And just so you know, the noise in the background when this was recorded could not be helped. They were doing construction. And, you know, you can ask construction workers to stop. Uh, They kind of don't want to listen. So I apologize for the hammering uh, during in the background on some of the, some of the excerpts here. But, you know, I'm curious, I was curious with Ruta as to the importance, because this film has populated the crew, Lithuanian, Ruta, the original work. The film is populated, the cast, all of the extras are either survivors or they are descendants of survivors. They are the children of survivors, the grandchildren of survivors. And I was curious as to the importance of having these individuals participate in this film. Take a listen. Were you on set at all while they were while they were filming? I was, and it was actually a very surreal experience um, to be on set. Uh, I was there when they were shooting um, not not the winter scenes, but some of the house scenes and, and spring and summer scenes. And it was surreal for me on a few levels. First, to see these characters that I had created, fictional characters, standing in front of me. And it also just so happened that the, the mother character, Elena, looked so much like my grandmother. Oh, and wow. the little boy who, who played Jonas looked so much like my father to the point where, you know, it, it was almost haunting um, and, and, you know, emotional and just a lot of emotions coming through, seeing the, the cast and the extras putting so much heart 
into this purely because they want to share this forgotten history with the world. And, you know, somehow this history has slipped through the cracks. And the commitment on behalf of people just really, oh, it, it moved me to tears, you know, on set. Well, you know, and something that I think that I think is very important as somebody who loves history and, you know, and loves cinema is the fact that the crew, I mean, this was shot essentially, quote-unquote, on location, and all of the supporting players, the extras, they were survive- some were survivors of the camps. Others were the children or grandchildren of survivors. Steeping this with people, this is their story. How important was that to you to have the film populated with people personally touched by this devastating genocide? It, it was not only incredibly uh, important to me, I understood going into this that it was probably impossible. Um, but then when Marius stepped forward as a director who was interested, you know, other directors wanted to shoot in, um, in Nevada or in Colorado. They said, oh, it's snowy. We can make it look no. like Siberia. But when Marius stepped forward and said, I want to shoot this in Lithuania, I mean, I, write, I wrote this book, but history wrote this story, and it belongs to the people who experienced it. And to see the true faces, the true witnesses, some of the elderly people that you see in the train car, they are survivors themselves. That was so important to me. And we had a screening in Lithuania um, specifically for the survivors. They had their own red carpet. Uh, event and they walked the red carpet with the president of the country wow. um, to the story that is their history and their life and and to honor them in that way this, that's above and beyond let's just say a, a traditional filmmaking experience mm-hmm. um, and and I know that's also you know it, it's just what makes makes it so special to me and when I tell readers actually some of the people you see in the film are are survivors. The, the students get, and young readers, they get so excited about that because they have this quest for the truth. Okay, Rudy, your book is fiction. We want the real story. How bad was it? Um, so I just really think it was a lovely testimony. And and also to show that, you know, these people, they lost their flag. They lost their country. They lost their family. They lost their language. But they couldn't take their spirit. And these people survived. And here they are on set at 95 years old, crammed in a train car in nine, you know, 90 degree sweltering heat. And Marius kept saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, yes, this is so important. We have to keep going. Wow. So, wow. Really a, a once in a lifetime experience and something that makes this movie just incredibly special. Yeah, and, and something that I found extremely fascinating because right after I spoke with Rude, I also spoke with Marius, the director, um, 60 hours of film they shot. 60 hours of film. Uh, I'm glad I was not in the editing bay on this one. But, you know, having just heard what Ruta talked about and the importance and having these survivors and the descendants of survivors participate in the film, I was very curious, and I wasn't even sure if she could answer the question as to whether this was cathartic for any of these people. But I was surprised because she was able to answer this question. And I just have to wonder, for, for many of them, how cathartic it was for them to participate. 
that's something they've carried with them their entire life. Yeah, well, and I can actually tell you there was one story um, that really affected me about how, how I don't know, what, what sort of impact something like this can have. You know, is it, and you, you brought this up at the beginning of the conversation, the potential of historical fiction, you know, to, to I don't know, for memory preservation and, and to facilitate progress. There was a man um, who, that I interviewed very early on for my research, and he was very frightened to talk to me. Um, and so he told me that when he was a little boy and he was deported, his father, he had his father's watch, and he wore his watch in Siberia. And the watch was long broken, but, but to comfort himself, he wound the watch. That was his coping mechanism, this little boy. And so in the novel, because the man didn't want me to use his name, I called the character the man who wound his watch. Well, fast forward to the um, screening that we had for survivors, and this man is elderly now. After the screening, he turned to people in front of him and behind him and said, good evening, I am the man who wound his watch. All of a sudden, this human being felt safe to step in and take ownership of their own story wow. because the film, he felt it shared it so accurately and vividly that he was no longer frightened. And I thought, you know what? This is so much bigger than a book. This is this is the power of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and of course, I know a lot of people, you know, won't won't understand, you know, won't really understand it the way that that maybe I hope they do, and that's okay. Um, but for this one human being, if it made him feel comfortable, comfortable and safe to take ownership of his life experience, it's more than I ever could have dreamed of. And I was astounded as Ruta was was telling me this. And we've heard similar uh, from Holocaust survivors uh, with all of the documentaries and all of the work that has been done and the interviews conducted with them. And we hear similar things that finally they have a place of safety. They can talk about something. But the important thing is that these stories are being told for future generations. And hopefully one day, maybe humanity will get to the point where we learn lessons from stories like these and don't make the same heinous mistakes and crimes again. Um, Unfortunately, we see that it keeps happening, uh, but one can always hope. And that's part of the power of literature and film is that it can, it can shine a light, a bright light where there is darkness, and it can allow people a conduit for hope and encouragement. And, you know, I also, at the end of my interview with Ruta, I had to ask her about what it was she learned in this experience as an author, having her book turned into a film and going along on this ride from the beginning to the very end. What did she learn? Because she has another book, Salt to the Sea, about the sinking of the uh, Wilhelm. You know, what is that? And that's been optioned by Universal. So here you have an independent production. Here you're going to have a studio production. You know, what has she learned in this independent production with Ashes in the Snow? Uh that she can take forward into the future. And you're, you're going to, you'll get a chuckle out of part of her response when she talks about uh, salt to the sea. So take a listen. 
One last thing for you, Ruta. I'm curious. This is your first novel. It is also your first novel that has now been adapted into a film. So I'm curious about what have you learned in this experience that you can now take forward? I know Salt to the Sea has been optioned by Universal. So I'm, I'm curious, out of this experience, from book to screen, what have you learned about yourself or the process that you can now take forward into your future works and make this collaborative nature even better, if that's possible? Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I really think I was so fortunate this time that I could probably never recreate the situation um, and of what this dream team was. Uh, my, my third book, Salt to the Sea, is in development with Universal Pictures and, and the script is already written. Um, and I, I, I just don't imagine I'll be as fortunate to be involved like I was here. But what I have learned to your question is that this, you know, history holds secrets and the lessons within transcend anything that I could hope to put in a book. And through writing this book, I myself have learned such profound lessons. For example, that, you know, human beings, we, we cannot choose our hardships, but we can choose how we face our hardships. Mm -hmm. And it was these people that I met on set who, you know, I did research interviews for the book, but through the film, a film reaches so much wider than a book does. Um, and also I've learned that there isn't just one way, there isn't just one story that, you know, and why make a movie that's an exact replica of the book? Right. You know, you can go deeper. You can, as you said, you can expand on character development. And so um, for me, it's really also uh, underscored the power of the collaborative spirit. That, you know, author, authors are sort of a, a, you know, you're, you're a lonely kind of profession, but seeing how Marius was working with Ramunas, was working with Ben, and how, you know, when energies are combined, you know, how you can take something entirely to a whole different level, and that has been so exciting for me. I no longer want to sit in a room by myself and write. I want to collaborate. And everyone should be so lucky to have Ruta Cepedis, collaborate on a project with them. Again, Ashes in the Snow, it is out in limited release in theaters. It is available on digital and VOD. And the book is available everywhere. Um, you can find that at the Between Shades of Grey. It's in your brick-and-mortar stores. It's online. Get it. Read it. It's fabulous. And in the, in the week since I spoke with Ruta, I did receive my copy of Salt to the Sea, which I purchased, and I just started reading that. I'm as equal, even more fascinated uh, by that story. So as long as Ruta is out there bringing history, forgotten, seemingly forgotten history to, to the printed page, I'll be right there uh, reading it all. Well, now, very excited because we have with us, is this the incomparable Melissa Stevens? This is she. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Melissa. Welcome. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, and congratulations on the web series, which I actually cannot wait 
I cannot wait for you to finish it because I've seen I've seen three episodes now. Yes, yes, and we're we're launching all three of them on uh, Friday, which is exciting in and of itself. Um, yes, I'm very excited about it. You know, how exciting is this for you to be at Slam Dance? You're having your world world premiere at Slam Dance. Um, it's really exciting because we uh, we sort of submitted just not even thinking we would get in. <laughs> so it just was like a, a shock all around. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I love the premise of this, finding the a-hole. Because as you so adeptly show us in just the three episodes I've seen, everybody can be one at one time or another about something. Yeah. You know, where did... They, it, it's easy. You know, where did the idea... Obviously, you see this in everyday life and everywhere you go. And the fact that you've got mm-hmm. Le- and the fact that you've got Leslie Headland as executive producer on here, I am not surprised by the subject at all. Uh, <laughs> I adore Leslie. Um, She's amazing. And I know when Bachelorette, when she did Bachelorette, and we actually did our interview in the lounge area of the Four Seasons. Uh, so it turned into quite an interesting, interesting time. Uh, <laughs> I bet, I bet. Yes, Fabian, the bartender, was our was our friend during <laughs> during that <laughs> that interview. But um, you know, what was the impetus to get you to sit down and actually decide? Okay, I want to do this. I want to tell these little vignettes, these little stories. How do I do it? Do I do it as a web series? Do I do it as a short film? Do I try and do it as a feature film? What was this process like for you? Well, I had just finished doing my first short film, uh, direct, like sort of directorial debut. And after I finished it, I was kind of like, oh, okay, I want to jump right into the next thing. And I had this idea for, I don't know, a, a few years. Uh, they're just kind of like sitting in the back of my head and I brought it up to different people and no one had really like bitten. And what, I don't know if that's a word, probably not. I don't think bitten <laughs> is a word, but I used it. Um, but basically I sat down with Tom Detrinis, who's the co-creator, and I pitched him the idea and we just started going back and forth. And then it just kind of was born out of that. And I went off and wrote them and was just like, I just knew immediately what they were going to look like. I could see it in my head. And I just kind of wanted to make something because I just made something that was like really kind of dramatic and intense and mm-hmm. like a labor of love. And I, I just wanted to make something for fun, mm-hmm. really. And I wanted to laugh with some friends. So now, was there, uh, what was the learning curve like for you to go from making a film to breaking this down and making the individual episodes. Was it more challenging? Uh, Did you have any restrictions on yourself uh, in terms of time constraints? Or I have to say, your polish, the polish on these episodes, um, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, you're you're pretty... Thank you so much. Really high polish. It belies the look of so many... Um, I mean, there are some beautiful and there are some great web series out there, 
but there are some that they do look like they were made in somebody's garage. Um, mm. And yeah. this is this is a high end look that you have, and it's especially the first episode with white on white on white um, in a, a high end clothing store, and it's beautiful. So I, I just, oh, thank I just, you so much. I mean, I'm so happy to hear that because those were all the things I was going for. So I'm glad that that all came across. So how what, did you um, have a learning curve though, going to episodic versus one whole piece? Yes and no. Um, it's interesting because we were just since I just wanted to make things for us, we didn't have any constraints. So. I kind of, it kind of evolved organically. Um, like we did the first one and I was like, let's do another. And then it was just like, oh, let's do another one now again. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, maybe this is a series. Uh, how many? Can and we, it just kind of happened. How many can we look forward to by the time you're done? Oh, gosh. I mean, infinite. Hopefully infinite. I mean, I, who knows? I mean, because I just, I, there are so many possibilities. The mind reels with possibilities of, of what you can do. <clears throat> Did you find that in, that in writing and creating, you had to temper yourself at all in order to find the dark comedic tone that you achieved? Hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> Only because... I didn't have a boss, you know, it was just me. So I, I really was getting an opportunity because I've spent so much of my career being like, oh, what is, what do they want? What does the industry want? What does this executive want? What does this casting director want? And this was a, a first time where I, I didn't have to think about any of that. And so it was actually really easy. Now, did you have trouble putting on the different hats of, director, writer, actor, because you're also acting in these. Did you ever have to check yourself at the door when you were in the midst of something and, and stop and pause? Oh, yeah, there's definitely a learning curve. <laughs> there is. It's not easy, um, especially when, when we're making these, like, on shoestring budgets. Mm -hmm. So we're doing even more than those hats because, you know, we don't always have a production designer or we don't always have an AD. So we're doing a lot of things. But you, if you have, like, really good people around you, you, you can have those conversations of, like, I need to take a minute, mm -hmm. <laughs> which definitely happened. <laughs> or, like, I need to pause. Or what do you guys think? Because I don't know what to do here. <laughs> well, you know, and you bring, you bring up a very important part, uh, a very important part, a point um, about shoestring budgets. It's difficult enough to get financing. And something like this for a web series, for individual episodes, that adds another layer of difficulty because it's not like it's going to be some big production and everybody's going to get behind it and they think, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. It's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15-minute pieces. And I think some, mm -hmm. some people just don't have the interest in something. That's that quote unquote small, even though just as much effort goes into a 10 minute short uh, or web series as may go into a 90 minute feature. Yeah. You know, how did you go about uh, financing then? 
Well, we paid for them ourselves is how we did the first two. Um, we would save up money and then we would ask for a lot of favors. And then the third one, we ended up doing a crowdfunding on Seed and Spark because we knew we wouldn't be able to afford it ourselves anymore. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of stepping up our game. So um, that's how we, we did the third one. And then a lot of the time, which has been really helpful is, you know, if you're doing work that you're proud of, other people will want to work for like lesser rates and they'll do things for free because they want to work with you or they think it's fun or that it's the first opportunity they get to just like do what they want. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask you about about working with Seed and Spark on the third episode, because I know other filmmakers that have financed through Seed and Spark. So I'm curious about your experience with them. It was great. I mean, it was really, I've done one other crowdfunding on Indiegogo, and I really enjoyed Seed and Spark because I liked how um, focused their platform is Mm -hmm. about um, crowdfunding and being inclusive and just really, like, they were really helpful for us to help us, like, kind of, make our crowdfunding clearer for Mm -hmm. like people so that we weren't just like, Hey, we need money. It was like, why, what's it for? You know? And, and I found that process really helpful. Um, I mean, crowdfunding is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I know it well. And yes, it is. (laughs) Wait, I just don't know why it's, Hey, we need money. Give us some, I, I can't figure out why that just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. I don't know why. I wish it I mean, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and because of being on a, a shoestring budget, I've got to ask you, who did the production design who, for your first episode? Because that is... So, His name is... It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's he's, gorgeous. Well, we kind of really lucked out because we shot in a, um art gallery. So it was already beautiful so we just had to make it look like a high-end clothing store so it was like bringing things in and um tom detrinis my co-creator um his friend david i'm gonna pronounce his last name wrong uh i'm gonna pronounce it wrong so i might have to email it later i'm not gonna pronounce it because it's gonna come out wrong uh he did a production design and him and tom uh just really killed it oh david shifalitti Yes, that's what it is. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. <laughs> like, Ooh, I might pronounce it wrong. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, that I think is just exquisite. And of course, for your second episode, which is hilarious about Thank you. being on the street. And I've got to say, you've got a great cast there, starting with number one. You've got Tom Lenk. I'm a huge Tom Lenk fan. Oh, oh my God, what a dream he is. Going back to the days of Buffy, I'm a huge Tom Lenk fan. So, oh my God, he's amazing! Uh, you know, how did you? Because and you had uh, this—that was quite a hefty little cast that you have for episode two, and of course, then in episode three, yeah. you get even bigger. So I'm curious about yeah, your, I know about your <laughs> casting process uh, and bring in because Lank um, Lank is a known name, um, and you he is. and you you know you get him in here. So what does that do to you in terms of casting, finding everybody, and does having a name 
help you even with small little web series like this? Well, I mean, for me, I don't think having a name hurts, but I don't think it necessarily helps either. If that makes sense, like it's great, but I don't necessarily know what it does. I love Tom because I'm just a huge fan of him, and he works with um, my co-creator Tom Detrinis. Tom directed him and Tilda Swinton answers an ad on Craigslist. And um, so I had been just sort of seeing Instagram and all these things and saw the show and was like, gosh, I would love to have him in. He would be hilarious. And he is really good friends with Christine Wood, who was in Chapter 2, and she also produces Finding the Asshole. So it just kind of like was kismet a little bit. Like I knew he would fit in perfectly. And casting for all of it, it's, it's interesting. I kind of just pull from my friends and people that I know of or that I'm fans of, and sometimes that comes from Instagram. <laughs> so in other words, social media is very, was he- very helpful for you in this process. Oh, actually, yes. I mean, I have found two actors in Chapter 3 I found um, through a hashtag of UCB Drag Race, um, and I was watching them perform like a live show on Instagram, and I was like, "Oh, I love them. I want them to be in this." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, so it's been really helpful. Now, I, I chapter three, I know because chapter one is going to debut at Slam Dance on Friday, on the twenty fifth. Correct? Yes, ma'am. Then, but two and three are going to pop out on Vimeo. They're not going to screen at Slam Dance. Correct? Yes, ma'am. Wow. So people are going to be in for a real, and I really hope everybody that goes to Slam Dance and sees Chapter 1, that they then rush home to Vimeo to see Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, because Chapter 3, you, you do a quote-unquote attack on horror films, which... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every every trope, everything we all think about, you know, D-rated horror films, you've got it all in there. And it is, that is hilarious. Hilarious. Oh, good. I'm so happy. You really got these chapters. And, you know, with chapter three and the, hor- and the horror film, um, this, whole idea, this whole idea, you also add in some really incredible lighting effects with strobes. Uh, you've got some nice effects in there that look like they were in-camera effects. You know, did you feel yourself progressing as a filmmaker as you go from Chapter 1 to Chapter 2 to Chapter 3? Because each one you're adding more ele- filmmaking elements to and more people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I grew immensely. Like, it's it's kind of astonishing to me because I, I sort of made a conscious decision of, like, I do want each chapter, not to top the one before, because the one before is just different, right. but to challenge myself in a way. And I sure did. And each one gets longer, too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, you know, and I can see the growth in, you know, in how you're approaching it in your filmmaking technique as you're going from one to two to three. And that's something I always love to see with directors, with filmmakers, is when you can see growth in their projects. And here it's essentially growth within the same project, overall project. 
And I see where you're pushing yourself, especially when you get into uh, the look, the wider camera angle to, to capture an entire room and, all, and everybody in it. And then even some slight dutching of the camera that you're doing in episode three. And it, mm-hmm. I really, you know, it's not cookie cutter. So, I mean, you really did. No. You did stretch yourself here. Oh, gosh, so much so. I mean, I it was <clears throat> I mean, it was really exciting, but it was scary, too. OK, well, it, uh, well, beyond the fact you're doing something, ep- chapter three about hor- horror films. What was scary? <laughs> what was scary? Well, I was afraid, like, because I'd never done stunts before. Um, I was just afraid it wouldn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's the best way I can put it. Like, I was just afraid that we would shoot it and I'd get it to the editing room and I'd be like, well, we didn't get it. <laughs> but um, we did. Now, was that... Was so it, it worked. It was just a leap of faith. Did you choreograph out some of those stunts that you have? Oh, yes. Yeah. All this, we had a stunt coordinator. We choreographed that. I mean, we choreographed the dance. We had to do all of that. Just because we were on such a tight budget meant we were on a tight shooting schedule. We didn't have time to rehearse on set. Mm-hmm. What was your shooting schedule like for each of the episodes? Episode or chapter one, chapter, yeah. we had four hours. A whole four hours? Uh whole four hours (laughs) it was tight and chapter two we had uh about a half a day in downtown la i was gonna say that's about that's out on the street so you've got traffic you have pedestrians you've got that adds new logistics to the situation for you oh gosh so many so many logistics um it, we, you know, we tried to plan ahead and do it on a Sunday. Uh, we got a permit. We tried to start really early in the morning so there'd be less people. Uh, but we had, I mean, actually, we probably had three quarters of a day on on that Sunday. Uh, but we had done rehearsal ahead of time, so I kind of knew what we were getting ourselves mm-hmm. into. Mm-hmm. And then Chapter 3 was a two-day shoot. So it was, it, was, it was our longest yet and still <laughs> could have been longer. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah. Wow. Times. Wow. So, yeah. so what can we expect with Chapter 4? Will this be a three-day shoot or a four-day shoot now? Oh, gosh. Who knows? I mean, really, it all, I mean, it depends on the script, but it also depends on the budget we have ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know yet. Uh oh, I hope it's bigger and better and longer. Well, that's always the goal. That's always the yeah. goal. So now, what are you looking forward to most at Slam Dance come Friday when you, this is actually going to be seen by a full audience of people for the first time? Well, it will also be my first time ever having anything I've made seen by an audience with me in the room. I've never had that. Uh-oh. So, <laughs> who knows? I, I'm, you know, my first short uh, was a staff pick on Vimeo, so that was really huge and amazing, but, you know, I, I didn't have that screening experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really excited to, like, see what people laugh at. 
Well, and it's not only a screening experience, it's a festival experience. And yeah, this I is think, my first one. And I think this is the 25th year of Slamdance this year, too. So, oh, wow. I mean, this is, a, this is a big thing for Slam. It's a big year for Slamdance. It's your first. I mean, this, this is, you know, when can everybody, everybody who's going to Slamdance, when and where at Slamdance can they see Finding the A-Hole? Finding the A-Hole is Saturday night at 7.15 and Tuesday at 3.15, I believe. And the, I think there's one theater. Mm-hmm. I've never been, so I don't actually know. So <laughs> let me see if I can find out where this. Uh, oh, well, I think all, all you really need to know is, is just the date and time. And then anybody who's there, you can, they can just go get anybody their Anybody who's there can go. Yeah, so yeah. Saturday night, 7.15. Well, bundle up. It will be cold. There will be snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> which is why I don't mm-hmm. go in person. I'm excited. I don't go in person for that very reason. I don't want to go into the cold and the snow. Um, but this is this is so exciting. I hope you enjoy it to its fullest, Melissa. I mean, it it is. This is you only get your first shot at your first festival and your first audience reaction, and uh, I think it's going to be wonderful for you. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for saying that. And I'm re- I actually put it in great perspective for me because I'm going to have a I think it's going to be so fun, and I'm just so excited. And thank you so much for this interview. It's been so great. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. for Thank your publicist for reaching out to me. This is on Catherine. I Ka- will. Catherine I will. reached amazing. out, and I went, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, back in December, she reached out to me. And I said. <gasps> She's the best. And I said, I have to have Melissa on the show. So uh, we had you, she and I had you booked back before the holidays. So, yeah. So you need to thank, I like it. you need to thank her. So <laughs> I will, I will. She's amazing. She's just a rock star. I mean, I'm just obsessed with her. Well, again, thank you. Congratulations on, on the series. And thank you for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back on the show again. I want to know what happens. Oh, at, I'd love to come back on the show. This was a dream. And I want to know what happens at Slam Dance. I want to know. We'll keep you posted. Please do. And again, everybody can see all three episodes of Finding the A-Hole on Vimeo Friday night after the premiere. Yay. Uh, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thank you. And have fun. Thank you so much. I will. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Melissa. Bye-bye. And that was Melissa Stevens finding the A-hole world premiere at Slamdance on Friday. You can also, though, then go to Vimeo, see these episodes for free. Um, Yes, and we had a director missing in action who, before, uh, before Melissa came on, I was emailing with the publicist who was trying to find her. And I guess she called in at the same after Melissa had already called in. So unfortunately we did not get to hear from Heidi human about behind the bullet. Um, did she say anything, Pam? No. Oh, well, hopefully we can reschedule her to another, to another week. Uh, I know next week, 
We are full up. We're actually booked up through February 11th on Behind the Lens right now. So we're juggling and, and cramming people in everywhere. Pam, let us take a, let's do a one-minute one and then come back and we'll do a sign-off, okay? So we'll be right back. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters... Stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle, too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. And welcome back. You are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, creator and host of Behind the Lens. That was fun having uh, Melissa call in um, because I think this is also one of her first big uh, interview and radio interviews that she's done. So I'm glad that she was happy and she was comfortable with it. Um, Before we go today, talking about Slam Dance, there is another short that there is a short film that is at Slam Dance called Dog in the Woods for everybody there. I have seen numerous films and web series, features, shorts, and the web series of things that are going to be presented at Slam Dance starting this week, this coming weekend. Dog in the Woods is my hands-down pick. It is magical. It's from Paul Jason Hoffman, Christian Chapman. And it is told through the perspective, the sensory perspective, of a dog named Alice. Uh, there is no dialogue. It is the story of Alice leaving her black and white house and going out into the woods where it explodes with color. It is a visual wonder watching this, watching this little short and I can't recommend it highly enough. So while you're up there at slam dance, catch dog in the woods. It is an absolute gem. Uh, I, I truly, it is enthralling. It's ethereal. It's beautiful. And Alice, the dog is so cute. You can't go wrong with a cute dog. Well, that is all the time we have today. As I said, next week, we got a full schedule next week uh, with more fabulous filmmakers. We'll also talk some more, some about the Oscar nominations. Oscar nominations tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. And no press in the Goldwyn Theater at the Academy uh, this year. So this is going to be interesting how this plays out. Uh, we're all, all going to be checking on uh, live feeds, just like all of you. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.